0: What's going on, guys? So today we're doing the first installment of a short series where I'm sitting down with Paulo Need, and we're going to be deconstructing the squat, bench, and deadlift. Now today we're going to be covering the squat, and uh, I'm really excited because there's well, one, Paul is a really, really phenomenal squatter, and so he's got a lot of great um, advice for how to improve the squat. Uh, I, I've been working with you for. About a month now, and I've actually noticed a massive difference in just like how my squat feels, and and some some pretty awesome progression. So I'm really excited to get you on and uh, just kind of hear what you have to say. So first off, thanks for jumping on, Paul. Could you? Uh, I know you've been on the podcast before, but maybe for people who haven't heard of you before, could you give a brief introduction?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's Paul O'Need. I am a, a competitive powerlifter in the 220-242 class. Um, I've squatted over 800. Uh, probably 11 times now Uh, my best squats 850 in the gym 805 in a meet best bench 430 and best deadlift 727 Uh, best total is 1960. Uh, i am the co-coach over at coaches corner university with tony montgomery i also own a coaching business myself doing training and nutrition called master athletic performance Uh, I've been coaching for over 15 years and have about seven years experience as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach, which is where where I started. Then I transitioned into disability rehabilitation and now now coaching exclusively online.
0: Awesome. All right. So I wanted to set the stage for this conversation um, just by kind of covering a couple of basics. So just so everyone's kind of on the same page, do you want to give a quick rundown of sort of deconstructing the squat execution and to kind of anchor the rest of the conversation. So we'll, we'll kind of start by covering like unracking and, and finding your stance, breathing and bracing, and then also the eccentric and concentric phases of the lifts.
1: For sure. For sure. So, um, I do want to say first, like the biggest piece of advice I have for any squatter when it pertains to the execution of the squat is that you want the movement to be as I use the word quiet because you want there to be as little wasted movement as possible. So how you set the squat up and execute it needs to be geared towards keeping it as quiet as possible, as efficient as possible. So when we set the hands, we wanna make sure that it's a comfortable distance from one another and you're centered on the barbell. Uh, Where you place the bar is going to be dependent a lot on the comfort level of the lifter. But for the sake of generality, we're going to assume it's a lower bar position. So below the top surface of the traps all or all the way down onto the rear delts. From there, you're going to set your feet a little narrower than shoulder width apart, assuming you're walking out the bar. Uh, From there, you'll take your deep breath into your belly stand up the bar pulling the chest pulling the head up nice and tall and the lats down you'll hold that head tall lats down position as you step back when you step back from the bar you're going to want to try and make it as like as least steps as possible so the reason we start narrow and then step wide is if you started with your feet wide and then backed up you would have to rotate your torso which would get the bar moving to a large degree so we start narrow our first step back is a step out then the next step is out ideally this is your squat position if not you can take a third step and adjust your feet from there you're going to exhale slightly to reset your brace i like to use what i call a package deal brace. So as you inhale through the nose, uh, the reason we use a nasal breath is to increase activation of the diaphragm and pelvic floor. Uh, So the top and bottom of that abdominal cavity, we're going to breathe in through the nose as we're breathing in, we're going to be pulling our head tall so that the the, uh, crown of our head to the ceiling like a puppet on a string, the chin back the elbows down to engage engage the lats. We're also going to be rooting ourselves into the floor. So digging that big toe into the ground, splaying our feet and screwing our feet into the floor. We're gonna squeeze the glutes and quads. So all of that is happening as you're breathing into the nose. Once you've taken your breath, you're going to brace out 360 degrees into your belt. The rib cage and pelvis will be perfectly stacked on top of one another. To initiate the squat, you're going to hinge at the hips to begin the movement. A common misconception here is that you want to be as vertical as possible and drop straight down, meaning you start from the knees. The reason we load the glutes first through a hip hinge is because you wanna load the muscles from largest to smallest, and you wanna make sure that the muscles loaded first are the ones that are loaded most. So we hinge into our strong glutes and hamstrings and from there we sit straight down so that's the you know the old back 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 that's not what we do in raw squatting we load the hips and then we sit straight down as we sit down the load is transferred more into the quads but those that eccentric is controlled by the glutes and hamstrings which enable the knees to track appropriately over the feet as we hit the bottom we're going to explosively drive again the head back and head tall so chin back head tall pushing into the barbell resisting that vertical or that horizontal push forward and we're trying to keep that bar path over the middle of our foot once we do that we lock out with the hips and we stand up so that was a very i'm sure we can get into the nuances of each 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 sequence there but that's a a brief overview of how i would look at a squat and coach it from top to bottom
0: we, uh, we can definitely go into some of those uh, positions a little bit more. Um, I guess before we do that though, can you just kind of go over the, the relative contributions, like the muscular contributions of the squat? Um, because there still seems to be a little bit of confusion around what the primary movers are and, and how each functions within the squat.
1: So the way I look at the squat and in most, like almost every movement is you want to load the eccentric in the opposite fashion that you would engage in the concentric, right? So in a concentric of a squat, we're driving knee extension and then hip extension. So knee extension to drive, to to straighten the leg and then hip extension to bring the hips back underneath the bar. Well, in the eccentric, we want to load the glutes and hamstrings with a hip flexion, so a hinge, And then we want to go into knee flexion as we sit into the bottom of the squat and then knee extension and hip extension. So in terms of contribution of the musculature of the lower body, that hip extension and hip extension and eccentric control of hip flexion is going to come from the glutes and hamstrings. Knee extension is going to come from the quads. You're going to have a relative contribution of the calves, depending on how much forward knee travel you, knee travel you have, um, and then the adductors will also be responsible for pelvic control and hip extension. So the the squat from a lower body standpoint is really a coordinated uh, a coordinated contribution from posterior chain to anterior chain. When we get into the upper body contribution of the squat. I come back to the word quiet. The upper body should be isometrically contracted throughout. It should be as rigid as possible and we should not see any movement through any muscles or anything in a perfect squat. Once that head position is set, the elbows are pulled down and the brace is set, that upper body is set in stone. It doesn't move. So those lats are, as we know, the lats engage to the uh, thoracolumbar fascia. They integrate with the Um, with the glute med on the opposite side to control that pelvis laterally from the posterior. The obliques are going to engage with the adductor on the opposite side for the anterior oblique sling to control the pelvis from the anterior. And then the rectus is going to prevent any type of of collapse through the midsection. The midsection becomes important because that's where we transfer force. So any loss of tension through the midsection is going to be a power leakage. Anytime we have a power leakage, we're going to have to search for tension somewhere in the body where it doesn't belong. And we lose that semblance of a quiet squat.
0: Um, I think that's good. <laughs> awesome. And so when you when you start out working with a new lifter, what are the key elements that you're screening for? Like I send you a squat video and say, this is what my squat currently looks like. What are some of the key indicator or key things that you're looking for um in evaluating someone's squat. So before I even um before I even look at their squat, a lot of times lifters will come to me and they've got
1: like nagging issues. So I mean, you came to me, you know, at the risk of you know client-patient confidentiality. Yeah, um, you came to me with a chronic rib issue. So you had that that you know, almost like a thoracic outlet type s- situation. Um which would indicate some form of power leakage through the midsection an inability to engage the lats, keep that spine neutral. Um, then, then you like sometimes clients will have knee injuries or back injuries or hip injuries or, you know, chronic pain there. So I've already in my mind kind of got an idea where those breakdowns are going to come from, right? So if, if they've got chronic knee pain, likely there's an internal rotation at the hip issue or some type of issue at the foot, Uh, If they've got a back injury, likely there's a midsection instability. So just like in my mind, I'm kind of already preparing myself for what I'm about to see. When I watch a squat, I watch for where am I seeing power leaks? Where am I seeing losses of tension? Where am I seeing tension recruited where it should be? An example, like I always look for, is this lifter maintaining a stacked position underneath the barbell? a stacked position underneath the barbell simply means that the bar stays over the midfoot, the hips are as close to that vertical plane and they're maintaining an even foot pressure. So if if they're squatting and they've got this forward head position, they're arched in the lumbar spine, their knees are collapsing, that's what I'm looking I'm looking for are there areas where we are looking for tension, where tension should not be found? Or are we seeing loss of position? Due to some type of queuing issue. One thing that I have tried to get away from, and I think I've done quite a good job, is immediately jumping to the prescription of special exercises, which I know we'll get into and looking at, does this lifter just need to learn how to squat better before we look at where, like, are these actual weaknesses? Or breakdowns? Or is it simply that this person doesn't know how to leverage their body underneath a barbell? So that's what I look for first. Can this lifter orient themselves in an efficient manner under the bar? And now, it's this is a, a kind of a cautionary tale to young coaches, but do not be tied to an arbitrary execution of a movement. So, don't be tied to the fact that every lifter has to squat with an upright posture. Uh, Every lifter has to have their elbows directly underneath the barbell. Uh, They have to squat with some arbitrary stance width or some arbitrary foot external rotation. We look for themes. Notice I didn't say anything about how wide the feet were or how externally rotated. I just looked at, I just mentioned, are they efficiently stacked underneath the barbell? Right. Because the way a lifter feels most comfortable is usually where they're going to be the strongest. And as long as we are flexible in our application of certain principles, like we shouldn't see a large knee valgus, like we shouldn't see the knees travel inside of the the, uh, inside of the framework of the foot. But if there's a slight knee valgus and it stays on top of the feet, it's not that big of a deal. You know what I mean? Everyone's built differently and that's what it comes down to. So having an understanding of the principles that you're trying to apply and being flexible in the application of, is this lifter actually weak? Is this lifter just not orienting themselves appropriately under the barbell? Or do we actually need to change their technique to get them into a a more stable or comfortable posture to achieve the desired outcome?
0: Yeah. And that's a great point too. Cause I mean, you look at two people who come to mind, I guess, in, in the women's division are Marissa Inda and Hunter Henderson Where Hunter Henderson. Polar like, yeah. 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 Monstrously wide squat. Like she's doing a sumo pull almost. And then Marissa Inda is basically like her Feels feet are touching. almost touching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and they both have, you know, are like world record holders. So yep. I, I find it hard to say that either one of them is doing anything wrong. And they both have that low bar
1: position. I mean, Hunter looks like she's squatting in a Smith machine most times, um, which which is why she's so successful in that movement.
0: Uh, So, would you email Yuri Belkin?
1: Yeah. And like Yuri Belkin is another great example. Okay. So, take Yuri Belkin and Dan Green. Okay. Both pull sumo, both squat relatively wide. Yuri's feet on the squat are super externally rotated. He squats with a very low bar position, nice narrow hand, and he's very upright. Then you have a lifter like Dan Green, orients himself very similarly under the bar, a tight hand position, wide stance, but Dan's feet are a little less externally rotated, and he loads his hips a ton. So just two lifters that achieve world-class levels of performance, built a little bit differently, execute the squat a little bit differently right but they both execute the squat with a nice stacked posture their joints are on top of one another they don't have any huge power leaks when they execute the movement there's nothing to nitpick there
0: yeah and i think sometimes that's kind of the the point that gets lost in translation where it's mostly it, it, if you're following the principles how that execution looks can can have a pretty significant variation from one person to the next, but they're all still hitting those major check boxes, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, sometimes when you look at a lifter and they're like, this is how I do things, you kind of get caught up with specifically how their form looks versus what they're trying to accomplish with their form.
1: Yeah, and I mean, very seldom, I'll use myself as an example. So I squat very differently than I did five years ago. Reason being is I literally can't squat the same way I did five years ago. But the way I did five years ago was very, very comfortable for me. I had a a moderately wide stance, feet externally rotated quite a bit, super, super, super upright. Well, I've had knee surgery since then, I've torn my quad, I've had hip flexor issues. I have to load my glutes more. My bar position is lower, my feet are more narrow, I'm in a more hinged posture right? I'm still squat. I still stay very stacked. I still have, I wouldn't say world-class squatting ability, but I'm absolutely positive. I can still squat over 800, right? But it, it, when I do it again, it's going to look completely different. I'm also wearing flat shoes. I used to wear a heeled shoe, right? So as long as we look for, as you said, I love that analogy of check boxes. right? We look for these you know qualities within the movement. And as long as those are present, we're happy, right? We can build on that.
0: And so if someone does have, let's say a handful of uh, energy leakages, like you were mentioning, how do you decide which area is going to have the the greatest contribution to improving their squat? Because sometimes you'll, you'll fix one thing and then a lot of the downstream effects are, are kind of corrected on their own. Sometimes, you know, you might work on one thing and it's not necessarily the issue. So how do you kind of decide where you're going to start? Um,
1: I like the word downstream. So in the squat, because I'd say that the squat and the deadlift are very similar, but in those both in those two movements, you're connected to the floor, but the barbell is attached to the body at the shoulder. So you have to determine is the energy leakage coming from where the bar is attached to the shoulder or how that force is being pushed into the floor. So is it a downstream problem or is it an upstream problem? So I would look at starting from the top, I would kind of go through a checklist of like, okay, how's their head position? Okay. Is that, does the head position change in the bottom? How's their elbow position? How's their, uh, how's their connection to the floor? Are they rooting? Are they hinging? Um, so are they sequencing the movement the way I want them to be? And that's kind of where I go through the checklist. Most times, unless you're dealing with a lifter who's a very high training age or who has achieved a world-class performance, the way they squat's going to be the way they squat. So you're going to have a really clear view of like this isn't a sequencing issue or a code or a technique issue, it's an actual breakdown. So I'll usually have a lifter go through a few weeks of programming and see like okay can i get their technique a little bit better does this like can i coach them through it before i look at you know i'll, I'll give them so for example a first program i give somebody uh and i know we're going to get into this but kind of jumping ahead is going to include a lot of loaded end range movements so it's going to include like loaded end range hip flexion. So something like a deficit stiff leg deadlift or a Romanian deadlift, something where I'm putting them under load and hip flexion. Can they control the torso? Can they engage the lats? Um, They're going to go into some sort of end range knee flexion, some type of split squat or front squat or something where the knee has to travel a great deal over the foot are they able to hit those positions? Like we get a lot of our insight on the breakdowns in the main lift by how the lifter can perform the assistance lifts. So if you program the assistance lifts correctly, you always want to look at the the, the competition lifts of the lifter. Like when we do intakes, like I took a look at your Instagram. I looked at how you squat. I looked at how you bench. I look at how you deadlift. And through that and what you're telling me in your questionnaire, I can look at, okay, where do I need to address the assistance work? Well, if a lifter comes to me with knee problems and on their squat, it looks okay, but their knee hurts. And then I look at their assistance work and they can't do a single leg RDL, I know we have to attack hip stability, right? So that's where I'm going to cue them more from that aspect on the competition movement. So not only are we looking at does the execution of the competition movement contribute to uh, the weakness or the power leakage, how are they performing on the assistance work, the the assistance work that I've initially chosen to attack those areas of focus that I thought were there. And sometimes I'm completely wrong. And and I think a lot of coaches that like, you're like, oh yeah, this is definitely this. And then you start attacking it. And it's like, well, you definitely don't have, poor hip stability, because you can single leg RDL 100 pound dumbbells, but your knee still hurts, right? So okay, let's let's attack this from a different direction. Um, so this is a bit of a roundabout way, but I would just kind of look at if the breakdown is coming from the upper body or the lower body? Is it coming from an inability to wedge under the bar with the upper body? Or is it coming from an inability to root into the floor and maintain tension in the lower body? Or are we having a a breakdown in the sequencing of the movement or a breakdown during any portion of the movement? So an example there would be, yeah, the person is wedged in nicely under the bar, they hip hinge, but at the bottom they collapse, right? So looking at where those are going to be. And then from there, if we know that they're executing the movement the way we want them to, we're still seeing those breakdowns. And we're doing the assistance work to target those areas that we believe are the culprit, then we look at modification of that competition movement or including uh, different barbell variants or tempo changes, and things like that. One thing I will say, sorry, is I try to maintain specificity as long as I can before I go to any type of variation. And specificity just means within that competition movement. So I will. I try not to vary more than than two or three variants from the competition movement. So a variant could be a change in bar position. It could be a change in tempo uh, or it could be a change in barbell. Right. So once you go to high bar, so high bar, one deviation, high bar pause, two deviations, high bar pause, tempo, three deviations if you get into stuff like uh Cambridge bar tempo squat to a box with chains, now you're at like five deviations from the competition movement. You're going to lose any type of dynamic, not any type, most of the dynamic correspondence. So if you can accomplish the goal with as close to a movement as the competition movement, you will be better off over time in my opinion.
0: Yeah, no, and that makes sense. And I mean, even, even from a rehab standpoint, it makes sense. A lot of the, like, even just speaking with, uh, I, I know you know Quinn uh, yep. from Clinical Athlete. And so he, he's a big advocate of the top-down approach as well. Like, why regress more than you actually need to if the, if the athlete can kind of tolerate either well, the loading or the exercise or whatever it is. So,
1: And, and from, a, from like the biopsychosocial model, as soon as you regress the athlete, that's a hit to the ego. It's a hit to the confidence, which is going to affect their perceived competence, which is going to affect their self-efficacy, which is going to affect their perception of pain, which, and so on and so forth. So you want, like, the research is very clear. Specificity works. So the more often we can competition squat a person, the more the more they're going to be able to competition squat. The problem is that competition squat does tend to be more fatigue-inducing. So we look for variations to accomplish a similar goal with less fatigue. That doesn't mean that you have to get completely away from competition squatting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely a fine line. Sometimes I think the whole idea of specificity and transference is somewhat like diluted where you always are low bar squatting. You always are doing this. And it's like, I do think that you should be keeping, you know, the competition movements are at least a very close derivative in pretty much at all times, but whether it makes up like the majority of your, of your, you know, squatting versus maybe some ancillary movements or something like that, just to kind of keep the the pattern going or, or even yeah. just to kind of keep familiar. Cause I know like I have some athletes where if they don't do low bar squats all the time, it takes them like two weeks, three weeks to get back into the groove.
1: You kind of waste those two weeks.
0: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it's, it's so pointless. And so um, I always try and kind of keep something going in there. So when it comes to some of the more general issues that you've seen with, uh, with squatters and some of your athletes, even, even yeah. myself, like what, what are the main things you've noticed that are fairly common among athletes?
1: So head position and foot pressure often go hand in hand. So that would be the number one breakdown that I see is an inability to, to keep that chin retracted and head pulled to the ceiling. So like the, the concept of get as tall as you can. So if I was to get as tall as I can, I wouldn't stick my chin up. I wouldn't pull my head, but like pull my head back, like right into my traps. I would retract my chin and then kind of pull it to the ceiling. As I do that, my spine gets longer. I go into thoracic extension, but I never lose the connection between my ribs and pelvis. So, that cue of like a puppet on a string, having the top of your head pulled to the ceiling, keeping that throughout. Then, any deviation of the head usually leads to a forward deviation of the barbell. So, as soon as my chin goes forward or my head drops, that barbell goes forward, which is going to put me onto my toes more. Well, what happens when you get pushed onto your toes? You shoot your butt back which you get into a really hinged over position. You don't leverage the quads out of the bottom of the squat. The the bar path trends towards the toes. So coordinating the athlete in a fashion where they can keep that head tall, they can hinge the hips, but then maintain an even foot pressure on the arch of that foot, keeping it stable with the big toe down, keeping that bar path over the midfoot. That's the number one breakdown. Number two that I often see is a collapse through the midsection because it's never set to begin with. So the manifestation of that is gonna be either like an excessive knee valgus or a stripper squat. Okay, so a stripper squat meaning that the hips shoot up before the shoulders rise. What I mean by that is when we set our brace, so I mentioned in the beginning that package deal bracing strategy where you pull the lats down, brace into the belt and stack the ribs and pelvis. If you hinge and maintain that orientation, right? So you maintain the distance from your sternum to your dick, that will keep everything stacked. If the first initiation of the squat is to elongate that distance and arch into the squat as opposed to hinge, so we go into anterior pelvic tilt. Number one, you're gonna put more shear on the lumbar spine. Number two, you've essentially turned off, if you want to use that word, or deleveraged lost tension through the glutes. So you've lost lateral hip stability. And then all of that hip stability comes down to the adductors. So, what's going to recruit out of the bottom? The adductors. So, the adductors are going to pull in and they're going to result in your hips shooting up because adductors equal hip extension, so you're going to extend the hip before the knee is fully extended, stripper squat. The way to fix that, it's not necessarily to make the athlete stronger, it's just to teach them how to use their strength, right? So how to orient under the barbell. So cueing that brace and a hinge, as opposed to a brace and an anterior tilt, something as simple as Increasing the time under tension so that they can feel their positions. So tempo work is very effective in that regard. Uh, or looking at okay, the next breakdown for knee valgus is simply: Are you trying to squat too wide for your frame? I cannot tell you the number of times I get athletes, especially females, trying to squat super wide, and I'm like, hey, let's move your feet two inches in on each side. Boom, no more knee valgus. Right. We have to remember that the hips are shaped differently for every person. If you don't have the hip structure to squat wide, you're just not going to be able to squat wide with the appropriate positions that we're looking for. So I would say those three breakdowns uh, are probably going to be the most common. Um, Second to that would be a loss of upper body positioning. Um, So maybe your head position is good, but the elbows pointed back. So you're in relative thoracic flexion that will always result in a forward forward bar travel in the bottom especially, and an inability to keep the hips underneath the bar. Because if the bar is forward, you're not gonna be able to leverage hamstrings and then your body will shoot your hips back to try and find tension in the hamstrings and bring it forward. A very important concept when dealing with any lift is you want to find the positions of maximal tension uh jane era is one of my best friends and uh you know he was my favorite lifter when i started powerlifting he has a quote that we use in our, in, our, in our seminars he says pay attention to the tension the tension is your teacher all of your strength lies in tension so how do i put my body under the greatest amount of tension in the bottom position of the squat that is the position in which I need to find every single repetition. So if we have power leaks
0: and we lose tension,
1: we're out of position.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. So I guess this is kind of a good time to, to talk about that then, because probably, yeah, the mo- most, at least for myself anyways, one of the biggest issues that I see is, uh, I think number two, two it was right where people initiate the the lift by going into anti pelvic tilt and just kind of yeah. dropping down and and that's that's a pretty hard thing to fix um some, sometimes anyways so can I you think go that's over... a reason
1: yeah sorry to interrupt i think you that that's what? a reason why people tend to avoid teaching a hip hinge like the the trend now is like no 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 bet break the knees first that doesn't make any fucking sense and it drives me nuts why would i break at the knees first just from a physics standpoint If I break at the knees first, all I'm doing is dorsiflexion and hip flexion, okay? So I'm sitting straight down. I'm going to run out of room. Eventually, I'm either going to run out of room or cut my squat high. Then if I'm going to cut my squat high, I have to shift my hips back. So you get into this position where you sit straight down and then back, you're fucked. I never understood that. Just get your hips out of the way, hip hinge, get your hips out of the way, and then sit between, sit your ass between your heels. (laughs) Done. <laughs> create space done um but anyway sorry continue
0: no no that, that that is a good point because that is that's something i see a lot of especially and i i definitely have that as a as a bad habit for myself and i think it was just cuz when i was weightlifting everything was just super exactly yeah for down. sure and every bar everything was front squat and then when i switched to low bar I mean, I've always been self-coached, and so i kind of look at people and watch everything and be like, oh, that makes sense and this and that. And then like I know what to do, but then I think I'm doing it. And then I watch myself and I'm like, oh, I'm not doing it. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: hard. And that that uh, that proprioception is something that a lot of people lack. And I think part of it is because not a lot of people do core work. Not a lot of not a lot of people train their abdominals. And unless you train through a range of motion, you're gonna have very little connection. Like you know, to use the bro term like mind muscle connection, right? So if, if you have very poor connection with those areas of your body, you're not gonna be able to recruit them under load. So one thing that I do a lot of the time is every work every warm-up contains a core drill. And on lower body, that's geared towards stabilizing core through hip movement, whether it's a dead bug, whether it's a bird dog, um, a Copenhagen plank, um, anything of the sort, it's I need proximal stability and distal mobility. So the ability to stack ribs and pelvis and then go through ranges of motion with the hip. Uh, that that fault is hard to fix, especially when people get really fired up. So when like, say say the loads are high and your arousal needs to follow suit, the ability of the lifter to actually set that brace and keep it there needs to be automatic. So putting in contingencies like tempo work and things like that in the early stages of training or even pause work for that matter, it kind of, it kind of fixes the problem for itself. Like if you try to pause a squat in anterior tilt, you won't be able to maintain tension into the bottom. You'll just dump into your knees. So if you dump into your knees, that's immediate feedback, hey, I didn't brace properly, right? So I am a big fan of prescribing assistance work that does the coaching for me through physical feedback, right? Uh, a good example, that's a front squat. You want to improve someone's thoracic extension, get them to front squat heavy. Well, if you can't front squat heavy, guess what's gonna ha- If you can't maintain thoracic extension, guess what happens? You lose the barbell and you break it. Easy fix. You're thoracically extended when you perform a front
0: squat, right? Yeah. No. I'm. I'm also a really big fan of, of choosing movements that. I mean, I guess you frame it a little nicer than me. I usually <laughs> say. I usually say exercises that punish a fault. Yeah, that's great. It's a great analogy. Yes. And and yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of like the zombie squats and, and stuff like that because I find like with myself, I'm so freaking stiff and like i used to be able to do a front rack position like no problem but now when i do it like i'll be squatting well even the other day you had me squatting a a top set of five or something like that and i was doing 400 and i did four reps but then the bar kept slipping and all i felt was my elbows like the weight was not heavy all i felt was my elbows were about to explode and then i had to dump the bar forward and i was just like yeah i've got terrible mobility terrible uh, thoracic i'm gonna i'm gonna
1: i'm gonna tell you something you might not know (laughs) nothing about you're 280 pounds and bench over 400. You have no business front racking a
0: barbell. <laughs> Cross your arms. I guess I just won't squat like that ever again. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, going going back on to uh, what we were talking about before, about kind of correcting that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that trunk position. So can you go over like proper IEP and bracing? Because I think those two things are, one, I think they're often conflated. And then... I also think that a lot of the times people miss things, like even just what you were saying about breathing through the nose to, yeah. to get better, like pelvic and diaphragmatic, like stability and, and kind of co contraction. Yeah. That's something a lot of people don't really know about. So can you kind of go into that uh, and, and kind of give, well, yeah.
1: actually, that's for sure. So um, the first piece is that most people, when they breathe and brace, they push their belly out that's a, that's a conflation. So you do want to push out against the abdominals, right? Because you're trying to think about it as when you're breathing, you're po- like, Chris Duffin is actually the one who I heard this analogy from. You want to think about bracing, like you're filling a vase, a vase a vase. Um, so you, you nasally breathe. Again, we, we know that we create better uh, diaphragmatic and pelvic floor co-contraction when we nasally breathe. We breathe in and we fill the air from the bottom up. Once it's full, what you're trying to do is you're trying to compress from the top and bottom and from the outsides in to push out, like to to compress that air to a position where that belt is being pressured against 360 degrees. The easiest way to teach that in my opinion, is to actually have a lifter squat with their belt one or two loops loose, if they're using a prong, uh, a prong belt, or if they're using a lever belt, to squat with the lever undone in their warm-up sets to actually force them to push out, so that's one. Number two is we need to make sure that the lifter has a good mind muscle connection with that musculature. And the only way to do that is to train it. So if you want to get better at recruiting the obliques, you need to get better at training the obliques. So simple things like side planks, pal-off presses, things like that to help you connect to that musculature is essential. But so when we talk about IAP, IAP just means, you know, intra-abdominal pressure. So we are trying to put as much pressure through our abdominals as possible but that can come at a detriment when we start to breathe into the chest and get into this like, like thoracic expansion. Because if you're squatting and you try to inflate your chest, you're going to lose connection with the abdominals. You're going to, you're actually going to elongate the distance between the sternum and your pubic bone. I said Dick earlier, it's your pubic bone. Um, so having a balance between how much air you pull into that belly and where you're putting it, um, I think. Lastly, is having an inability to move your limbs independent of your spine. So if you are uh, if you're braced and you're trying to go into hip flexion, well, let's practice some movements where we're braced and trying to go into hip flexion things like belt squat marches and things like things of that nature like zercher marches have the athlete go through ranges of motion that teach them exactly what you want them to achieve in the competition movement i think that covers it uh did i miss anything
0: i just hope that everyone can understand some of the technical terminology you used because not not everyone's necessarily familiar what that means the uh the dick to the sternum so just read a medical textbook. You guys will understand. Yeah, your dick—it's like on the front of your body. Sometimes yeah. it's hidden. Sometimes yeah. you know <laughs> you can find it. So one thing as well that I'd just kind of like you to touch on is breathing and whether or not that changes based on doing like let's say a heavy single or triple versus. Oh, the, These are eight.
1: Yeah. Okay. So this is a great conversation, and I'm going to start with a rant. If you walk out a squat and take your breath and I see the bar rise and then fall, you suck. You have no idea what you're doing. Number one, when you are walking out a squat, you should do so in a brace, right? So as you, as you get under the bar, you set your shoulders, set your lats. You want to set your brace. Okay. The reason being as soon as that bar is loaded on your spine, you're compressed. You will never get as strong of a breath as you can when you're unloaded. So when I see people in a monolift wedge underneath the bar, stand up, and they go exhale, I'm like, you idiot. Because now all that weight is on your spine, and you can't expand your core because it's already compressed. So when you're walking out, you're braced, and that next breath that you take is you are, you're small exhale small inhale you're not losing your brace so that's for a single right so we want we want to keep the strongest brace we can when you're squatting for multiple reps you need to have a combination of what we call a respiratory bracing strategy and a muscular bracing strategy so think about a sprinter a sprinter who's running 400 meters that sprinter must breathe while they're sprinting. So their their bracing strategy cannot uh, cannot be centered on respiratory mechanisms. It cannot be achieved by breathing and holding the breath. They have to continue gas exchange. So bracing while performing multiple repetitions or extended exercise has to have a muscular component. So they're contracting their abdominals, their obliques, all those things, but they're breathing through it. When you're squatting under load for multiple repetitions, you are able to breathe and use a respiratory strategy. So we breathe in and we compress the air. We use that air to increase intra-abdominal pressure, stabilize the spine. As you fatigue, your ability to use that respiratory strategy diminishes. What you can do is perform a set number of reps on a single breath and then rebreathe after a couple breaths. This is a more advanced strategy. What I do like people to do is to perform that first repetition with a fully respiratory strategy. And then maintain that muscular contraction into the second, third, fourth, fifth, while using less of a respiratory strategy. So I don't actually coach it this way, but it's just what I'm looking for. Like if I said that to a beginner athlete, they'd have no idea what I was talking about. All I'm looking for is, is this lifter collapsing and then reinflating between reps or are they maintaining their position under the bar between reps? If they're maintaining their position, I know that their abs are still working and they're still breathing into them, but they're still maintaining contraction. If you see that collapse under the barbell and then a reinflation, you know that they're not bracing properly and you can coach them accordingly. Um, but understanding the difference between like a respiratory strategy, which would be for a single, and then a combination respiratory muscular, which we use for multiple repetitions.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, I I think you did a great job of kind of breaking down the difference because that's one thing that honestly drives me nuts as well is the people the get all tight, they 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 unrack it, they come back, and they go, and then you just see the bar like pop like four inches up and you're like, dude, you, you've completely lost all the kinetic energy you just built up. Like, what are you doing? Well, not only that.
1: So if you look at like, okay, if you were to shrug up and come down, well, you're going through scapular elevation and depression. You are – potentially losing a connection with the lats Um, more than likely you're putting the air in your chest as opposed to your belly, right? You want to compress the, the torso. If I'm, if I'm breathing in through my chest, raising my, elevating my ribs against a loaded barbell and then sinking it down. Number one, I'm probably making my torso longer. So I'm increasing the lever arm between my hip and the barbell. If anything, if you ever see me squatting a heavy single with with a straight bar, I walk the bar out, I breathe into my belly, the bar doesn't move up, it sinks down, right? It sinks down as I brace, I'm shortening that lever arm and it might be only a half an inch an inch, but that makes a huge difference when that's 750, 800 pounds, right? An inch becomes a mile, especially as the loads increase. So if we can leverage even the littlest bit, we must do it. And then it also ensures that the air goes to the right spot.
0: Yeah. I definitely noticed that like when I started changing up my breathing and really feeling actually, you know what? It's funny because for me anyways, I found that my bracing improved the more that I focused on my balance through the feet and the load distribution through my feet. So when I focused on that, it just kind of like the rest of me just kind of sort of aligned naturally in order to make my balance evenly distributed distributed and then um
1: so it's that upstream or downstream right so your yeah, issues were yeah. upstream coming from the bottom some people have that same issue but focusing on their head position and lap tension fixes that issue it's tough it's tough to know
0: yeah but it, it was so crazy like how all those things were related and then once they started doing that that was kind of when I started realizing that I had this like big anterior pelvic tilt. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of causing some issues. And then same thing, like started to kind of really focusing on just breathing in and like, as you're breathing in, you just kind of feel yourself sinking into the ground a little bit more. I I don't know. Like, it's almost like the the way I kind of described to some people, sometimes when you lift the bar and you unrack it, you're like trying to hold the bar up versus like just letting it sink in and like feeling the load through your feet, as opposed to, feeling it up on your shoulders like you're trying to carry something yeah and 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 when i started bracing a little differently and really really expanding through the belt that's when i noticed a big difference and it's like oh it doesn't feel like it's really heavy on my back anymore like it it does but it's it's different yeah the one thing
1: the one thing that people so with your specific issue with the thoracic flexion issue if you go into anterior pelvic tilt you're increasing that moment arm. So you're going to have more forward translation of the barbell, which is going to naturally put you into more thoracic flexion. So there's always comp- there's compensations above and below, right? So if you, if you APT into your pelvic tilt and you lose connection laterally through the pelvis and you end up collapsing at the knees, well, that's, that's a fault too, but that force could also go upstream. Right? That, loss of, uh, that loss of tension could also go upstream. So the lats are internal rotators of the shoulder. If you tension the lats and then flex the T-spine, maybe that was a more stable position for you. But as soon as you correct that anterior pelvic tilt, you free up some degrees of freedom through the thoracic spine. You're able to get into a more extended posture. Well, now you don't have that compression problem. right? So it could be both sides of the same coin.
0: Uh, yeah, I I don't doubt that I have a whole host of problems that are on. You're not that bad. You're way too hard on yourself. You're really not that bad. <laughs> All right, um, so l- let's move into some of the actual considerations regarding like why well, I know you touched on exercise selection a little bit there, um, but maybe if we could talk about like frequency loading, um. Sure. You you did touch on assistance movements as well and some variation stuff. So let's let's go down like
1: down the list. So in terms of frequency, it's important to know what you stand to increase when you, or what you stand to manipulate when you look at a variable. So when it comes to frequency, the benefit to frequency is motor learning. Right, More frequent exposures to a movement are going to develop better patterning, assuming that you're performing the movement with proficiency, are going to develop a more consistent pattern and you're going to be able to, the more exposures you get, the better you're going to be able to leverage that skill. Well, frequency also brings with it the fact that you have to recover from every exposure. So if your loads are excessive, right? so if your loads are high intensity, whether absolute or relative, you will be able to tolerate less frequency. So someone who's squatting four times a week, their average intensity will have to be lower than somebody who's squatting twice a week because they they could not tolerate the same average intensity as someone who only got two exposures. So there's always gonna be trade-offs when manipulating variables. What we might see is that as we get closer to a meet, the specific the, the frequency of specific work should go up, right Because as we're getting closer to a meet, there is more consideration to technique and output. Well, when we look at volume, again, the more volume you can tolerate, the more adaptation you potentially can accrue. But volume must be recovered from. In, in recovery, you have to look at your recovery like a uh, like a budget. So you have a certain amount of adaptive energy that you can, t- you can allocate for recovery. And every time you manipulate a variable, you either end up leaving more money in the bank or taking out more withdraw- withdrawals. Volume seems to be something that demands a lot of money. Okay? So if you're, t- if you're squatting with a lot of volume, you're gonna be able to tolerate less frequency and typically less intensity this can be confounding because if you spread the volume over more days you have the potential to tolerate more overall volume if it's split between more days than if it was split between less days but again it's going to be dependent on the average intensity of those sessions so when you look at frequency intensity and volume intensity uh, i refer to the absolute intensity so the load on the barbell they all work together. It's a cycle, right? There's no, they cannot exist in a, in a bubble. So what you'll see sometimes is people who are inexperienced at programming will have like say a three time a week program, but then all three days of those, of, of, of those exposures gets heavier at the same time and then they end up getting fucked up. So you always have to have the ability to recover from whatever manipulation of the variables that you're putting forth. And that comes with communication, monitoring, monitoring output, and looking at performance, right? So performance is going up and frequency is high and your intensities are coming up and your volumes are relatively stable, well, you're in a good spot. But if intensity comes up, you're gonna have to look at, okay, do I need to draw volume? Do I need to split this volume over more days? Uh, Do I need to condense the volume into less days? How am I gonna manipulate it? And that's gonna be based on the lifter's size, their experience, their gender, Uh, how relatively strong they are, how absolutely strong they are on a whole number of factors. And there's going to be outliers to everything. I think of a guy like John Hack who's a world record holding powerlifter. He's very absolutely strong. He is incredibly, relatively strong. He still tolerates high frequencies, right? Whereas you look at a guy like Dan Bell, who is the strongest person on the planet. He squats once every two weeks. Right. So it's going to be very dependent on the individual, but as long as you understand how each variable impacts your training paradigm and that, you know, stimulus adaptation response curve, you will be able to manage the exercise variations, intensities, volumes quite well for that lifter.
0: And so when it comes to like exercise selection, how do you determine like which exercises are going to have the highest transference, especially when it comes to accessories? Cause yeah. sometimes I see people choosing exercises that, that are good exercises, but they're not necessarily appropriate for that particular lifter. Like, I don't know, Bulgarian split squats. I kind of feel like those are pretty damn good for like the vast majority Everybody. of people. So, so maybe yeah. that's not the best example, but you know what I mean? Right? Like,
1: okay. So it's like, a, uh, let's take a single leg RDL. A uh, Bulgarian would work too, but so a single leg RDL. Single leg RDL is a tremendous exercise to improve hip stability, to train the hamstrings and glutes, to practice bracing. It's essentially a loaded bird dog when you look at it. Someone like if you have a lifter who collapses through the knees and then you start and then you see in their program that it's an ipsilateral single arm loaded single leg RDL. Why would you train the adductors on a lifter who recruits their adductors more, right? So that's where you get into the questions of like, why is this here? Well, for that lifter who has a chronic knee valgus, we might want to do a contralaterally loaded single leg RDL to leverage glute med a little bit better. So we train opposite the movement fault to get better stability through the hip in that manner. You're going to see carryover one thing that I really harp on the young coaches is if you can't answer the question, why to what exercise modality sets and rep scheme of what you're doing, it shouldn't be in there, right? If you can't tell me why you're doing a barbell row instead of a pendlay row or why you're doing an ipsilateral load versus a contralateral load, or why you're using a med ball versus a dumbbell or any of these, any of these instances, It has no business to being in the program. I don't care if it's the fucking first movement of the day. You have to be able to answer why. When I look at the squat, let's talk in generalities, right? So my favorite assistance lifts for the squat are going to be the front squat, first and foremost, Um, and then are going to be probably the high bar squat would be second. And then if we get into specialty uh, barbells, it's usually going to be the safety bar. My favorite modification to the lift to actually, you know, get a lot of carryover is going to be paused squatting followed closely by tempo pause squatting. I'm not a big fan of tempoing without a pause. I don't really like, unless you're going for hypertrophy, I don't really see a big point. I'd rather you pause. Um, The other thing that we need to look at is modifying movements and including movement variants is a tremendous way to control for absolute intensity. So say we are squatting three times a week. Well, if two of those squats are competition squats and one is a variant, we're more than likely going to be able to tolerate more volume. If two are a variant, we're probably going to be able to tolerate more volume because the average intensity from an absolute perspective is lower. So it's all about looking at How can I manipulate these variables to get more out of the athlete knowing that over time I have to go from general to specific, right? So in the off season, if you're using multiple variations, you're going to be able to perform more volume and you're going to be able to work harder while accumulating less fatigue because the absolute intensities are lower because typically as you vary the movement from the competition movement, it becomes less and less absolutely intensive, so it's a tremendous tool to be able to understand these variables and manipulate them based on what you're kind of looking for within that instance. Uh, knowing very well that we need to get more specific as the competition approaches.
0: As far as aerobic conditioning and powerlifting, I know powerlifters are pretty, there's like all the memes going around, you know, like three reps yeah. is, is is cardio or whatever, but um I have coached individuals who have just horrendous work capacity and it took a while for them to actually get up to a certain level of fitness. So they could actually like, you know, train properly because they couldn't even handle enough stimulus to actually get them stronger at that point. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was really bad. Granted that, that's fairly rare, but I have had that. And there, it, this guy in particular was a really strong dude. So he was, he's a young guy. He's like 22, 23 squats, like seven fifty raw. raw. Um, So he's a and he's a big boy. He's like 135 kilos or something like that. But his general fitness was absolute dog shit. Mm -hmm. So he'd do like one squat set and then he'd be like, I'm done for like the week, basically, you know?
1: I have a lifter like that
0: too. And uh and it took it took about like six to eight weeks before he was able to like do a reasonable training session and then could kind of finish his week and it wasn't wasn't too bad for him. But uh what role does aerobic conditioning play in powerlifting and how do you or like what are what are the different modalities or executions that you like to implement to, to get their level of general fitness up.
1: So one thing that I found really interesting is in my, like, I don't think you're going to be able to find this in the literature anywhere, which is unfortunate. It'd be a really cool study to run. Is that my lifters who are the most aerobically fit peak the best. I don't have to lift them as heavy and they get the best results in terms of training weights versus competition without fail. What role does aerobic conditioning have in powerlifting? I would say minimal. Um, I do conditioning work myself because I enjoy it. Uh, I don't necessarily look at it as a way to improve my performance under the barbell. I think for the most part, you can get an athlete very fit by monitoring their non-exercise physical activity. So like how many steps they take a day and by modifying their rest periods during certain portions of their of their, uh, off season. So, if you're prescribing a good amount of work with reduced rest periods and supersets in their assistance work, you should, you should have a fit athlete. It might take them a few weeks to get up there, but over time, they will get more fit. Something as simple as uh, making sure the athlete is getting 10,000 steps a day, they're going to be getting more work. They're going to be getting very low, like zone one aerobic capacity. If they're really bad, you might need to program some, like some light conditioning, maybe some zone two stuff. Uh, so like somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 to 140 beats per minute. Um, it doesn't have to be crazy hard and it doesn't have to be a lot. It could just be like two or three times a week for 20 minutes. Something that most people feel or don't understand is that aerobic fitness comes very quickly. Like to get us sm- like a good base of aerobic fitness doesn't take more than a couple of weeks and a couple of exposures. Um, so the my main modality is walking if it needs to be more than that uh, i might go to like a, an uphill walk or a treadmill walk uh, i do on occasion prescribe like sled drags and things of that nature and i'm a really big fan of suitcase walks so this is something that i got from a friend of mine cole streets where uh, who's a chiropractor in uh st myers florida he would just grab a kettlebell and go for a walk. And every time he felt tired, he would switch positions. So it'd be like left hand, right hand, front rack, front rack, goblet carry, right hand, left hand, whatever. Um, so he would just go for a 30 minute walk carrying a kettlebell. So he's getting a ton of core work and he's getting his aerobic capacity up. Uh, it probably increases the difficulty of the walk about 10% uh, in terms of your heart rate so it's a, it's a tremendous tool or just going for a walk with a weighted vest or anything like that. Um, the biggest piece of advice I have for lifters who want to include aerobic conditioning into their program is if, if you can save it at all, make sure that it is the least demanding in terms of recovery. If you get into doing metcons and sprints and hill sprints and tons of kettlebell swings and all this stuff that becomes a training stimulus, which becomes a stressor, which is something that you need to recover from. Right. So remember I I mentioned that adaptive reserve, the the bank account of recovery, your aerobic work should put more money into your account than it should take out. That's a good rule of thumb.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I I definitely have had, actually recently I had a client, uh, a new client come to me and, they were telling me like, um, about all the training they were doing and they would do like five hard strength training sessions a week, plus four CrossFit sessions. Plus they'd like ride. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I didn't ask. I was, I was a little preoccupied just taking all these notes. I was like, Oh my God, man. And, uh, yeah. And then on top of that, they do like a hundred miles a week on their bike or something like that. It was just, it was absolutely ridiculous. And uh, and they're like, yeah. Can we include like some hit training in, into this? And I was like, I think you might die.
1: <laughs> yeah, you
0: know, I was just like I think you need to cut something out because you're not going to get any stronger if you're doing all of that stuff. Like you need to kind of pick something. To was the person prior- really small? They were very small. They were yeah. small and they were old. They 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 had a ridiculous capacity though because they were. Uh,
1: oh shit! Put a hundred miles on his bike a week.
0: Yeah, they were like a former like professional racer or something like that. Like oh, cool. it was like a, a bike racer or something like but that. He wanted to get into
1: powerlifting. That's a cool client to have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> probably a like, shit man. bench press. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he, he's an older guy anyways. Right. He just kind of oh, wants okay. to get strong and stay healthy, you know, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was just like looking at, looking at what he was giving me. I was just like, this is at the same time you're doing all this stuff. I'm like, Jesus, man, it's crazy. But yeah, I feel like hit training is like, often taken out of context where it's like if you're doing three hit workouts per week like that's your training i mean you it know, depends how like long they are too like if you're just doing
1: 10 minutes of sprints like 10 imam mom sprints three times a week it's probably not going to be very taxing but if that <laughs> becomes health man well <laughs> sprints is relative right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so i mean if you're doing like 20 minute hit sessions five times like it, it Again, frequency, intensity, duration, all is going to factor in to how much you pull out of that bank account. And it's very easy to know when you're overdoing it, right? Because you'll see a dip in performance. Like I, I've been on my bike quite a bit lately and i the fucking worst deadlift session ever. I'm like, I wonder if there's a carryover.
0: Well, of course there's a carryover. Awesome. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm definitely looking to get out a lot more. I used to do a lot of hiking, and then once I got beyond like 245, it just it became a little too hard to do these like 10, 12-hour hikes, and so, but I still want to get out boarding and cycling and things like that, because that, that is a lot of fun.
1: Cycling's been really nice, actually. The only thing I've had trouble adjusting to is the posture, like that like splayed out deep hip flexion posture. Yeah. The first couple of rides did beat up my SIs a little bit, but man I fucking love it I feel so energized afterwards it doesn't really beat me up my knees actually feel really good which is nice um and I'm looking to get uh, back into some mountain biking there's some nice trails out here so I, I took up mountain biking last year I moved away from Calgary and took up mountain biking and then uh and then I got a road bike this year so I'm looking to spend quite a bit of time on my bikes
0: that's awesome yeah I, the, the one thing that does get me though with this body weight is the seat I just can't, you get, I can't you to adjust good, to that thing. A good, uh, a, a good pair of shorts, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, but if I didn't have shorts, my seats would, oof, I'd have
1: no more boners ever.
0: <laughs> Basically. Um, all right. So, so we'll, we'll, kind of wrap things up here real quick. How, how do you decide what priorities to focus on within a given mesocycle?
1: Well, number one would be proximity from a meet. So how far are we away from a competition? Next is because I use more of a concurrent model, I look at training like as a pie chart. So if we're far away and we can get very general with the training, more is going to be dedicated to hypertrophy, work capacity, that sort of thing, and less is going to be towards maximal strength. If we're looking at, you know, as we get closer to the meat, our priorities are going to shift and the elements of that pie chart are going to kind of change in terms of their bias but we're always doing a little bit of everything. And that can be extrapolated on, you know, if you look at like a strength power, putting that into a pie chart, then you look at like, okay, how much of my training is going to be looked at intensity, volume, duration, time under tension, uh, all all those different qualities. Well, that goes in a pie chart as well. Then you look at, okay, am I going to be doing internally stabilized or externally stabilized movements? So am I going, you know, all of these factors Get thrown into pie charts, and we look at okay, where are the needs of this individual? Well, if they want to get bigger and we're in the off season, well, we're going to be doing more externally stabilized movements, higher volumes, lower average, lower absolute intensities, uh, higher relative percentages, or higher relative percentage, or higher relative fatigue, and then looking at okay, more sets to failure. All of these things will come together because we're trying to get bigger and put on more tissue then that's going to flow. So as long as you have a plan of like where the emphasis needs to be, because you know where, you know where the meat's going to be, right? Maximal intensity, maximal output, internal stabilization, no hypertrophy, no volume, high intensity. That's your endpoint. So how far away from that can we get? Then how can we look at each individual element and manipulate it in a way to get the best for that athlete? Um, That comes from communication. Like, Where does this athlete feel that they need the work? Where do you feel that this athlete needs the work? Then finding some type of common ground of like, okay, this is the approach that we're going to take. And then collecting data along the way, communicating thoroughly with them, knowing like, is this working for you? Am I seeing the outcomes that I want to see? And then over time, that plan iterates on itself until it gets to the point where you're at the
0: meet. Awesome. Yeah, I, I think we covered pretty much everything. And and I feel like this is a, r- a really, really great kind of squat tutorial or squat manual. Um, it, was, it was actually pretty interesting. I definitely learned a couple a couple new things. So that was that was awesome. Um, so we're kind of past that. Oh, I think we're actually coming up almost on ninety minutes right now. I think we're we're trying to do all. <laughs> I think it was yeah. a little ambitious. You're going to do all three in one day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I honestly thought I was like, yeah, I think we can knock these out in like thirty minutes each, hour and a half. That should be fine. And then I'm like, oh yeah, not we're getting even. the weeds, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, do you want to just tell uh, the listeners where they can find you? Absolutely. So on Instagram, you can find me at
1: Paul O'Need, P a u l o n e i d. Uh, at Coaches Corner U, uh, at Master Athletic. And then my website is masterathletic.com. And then for Coaches Corner, we're actually running a 14 day free trial right now. So Coaches Corner is a uh, education platform for coaches to help uh, bring a university level education to coaching. So to bridge the gap between academia and research and then how to coach a client in front of you. Uh, Really proud of that. It's been been a lot of fun to work on and we're running a 14-day free trial uh so sign up no risk and see what we're all about so.
0: awesome so all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes guys definitely go check him out he puts out a lot of content on the regular uh and he's also got a podcast which is also called coach's corner actually I was yeah, it today. yeah there you go all right thanks so much for all for jumping on man no no problem thanks for having me